Hello, and welcome to Objective Health. I'm your host, Doug. With me in our virtual studio are Elliot and Erica. And behind the scenes, we have, as usual, Damien on the ones and twos. Hello. So today we are going to do another one of our... It's been a while. Um, so we're going to do another one of our In the News shows, where we kind of just take uh, the most recent health headlines and kind of go through some of the the stories of the day. So today we're going to be talking about a study out of India that found smokers and blood type has uh, some connection to whether or not you will get COVID. Uh, Also out of India, um, we're going to talk about the current COVID crisis that's going on there, but give it a little bit of context to maybe debunk the idea that it's uh, an actual crisis. And we're also going to talk about in the UK where uh, some recent statistics came out showing that um, the UK is in the midst of a mental health crisis with children being the worst affected. So why don't we start with the um, Indian study? So this study came out um, and it was, what was it? So basically it was conducted by the Indian Council for Scientific and Industrial Research. And it had some very interesting findings. One is that um, smokers, people with blood type O, and to a certain extent vegetarians, are all, all seem to have some kind of protection going on from COVID. So these are all kind of interesting and, and, and some of them are surprising. The, the smoking thing, actually, I remember that came out. There was a study out of the U.S. early on in the whole COVID thing that actually found that um, smokers seem to have some kind of protection going on from, uh, from COVID. Um, and there's a couple of different ideas about the mechanism there. One is that uh, smokers seem to have, uh, or don't seem to, they do tend to have a, uh, a layer of mucus on the lungs that non-smokers don't have, which can cause kind of a mechanical protective function. But there's likely more going on there, which has to do with ACE2 receptors and nicotine. Um, and maybe not to like put Elliot on the spot here, but what do you, what do you think about that, Elliot? Because <laughs> you're a little bit uh, better... Um, equipped to talk about ACE2 receptors and nicotine. Yeah, I'll be honest. I don't actually know that much about the ACE2 ah. receptor. Um, basically, from what I understand, it was studied heavily because it's one of the... Uh, I mean, ACE2 stands for angiotensin-converting enzyme 2. Um, but apparently, this was one of the ways by which uh, COVID gets into the cells, right? So you have... You breathe in... Uh, viral particles or whatever um and you have your protective mucus barrier lining the surface of the lungs but then you have your cells and the cells if it can penetrate into the cell then it's going to get into the bloodstream and uh, cause systemic infection right so uh this particular uh enzyme was a way by which it could do that okay mm-hmm. Now, um, yeah, the interesting finding with nicotine or smoking was, I mean, this this particular enzyme, when it's activated, it's been associated with uh, 
anti-inflammatory kind of processes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can kind of uh, calm down the immune system when necessary. And in smokers, they found that there's a much higher level of ACE2 activation. Um, and now, paradoxically, what this is doing is it's potentially increasing the likelihood of the virus getting through the lung barrier into the cells. Right. But then we've got the unexpected finding that smoking is actually protective. And this has not just been found in India. This I think this was originally documented in China, specifically uh-huh. for COVID. And um and it's the case with a variety of other kind of infections and other kind of illnesses as well is that smoking does seem to have somewhat of a protective effect, particularly neurological conditions, uh, but some infections as well. And um, like we've spoken about several years ago now, the uh, the experiments on, on animals where they would try to induce lung cancer through radioactive particles, um, and they would find that smoking had a very similar effect, that the, the animals that were exposed to copious amounts of cigarette smoke did not develop lung cancer. On the other hand, the animals who were exposed to the radioactive particle without the cigarette smoke, they developed lung cancer and died pretty quickly. Um, right. Now, yeah, so so here's another study for, from India, essentially showing the same thing that the, I think it was the Chinese uh, research showed, and I think there's been a couple of other European studies showing a similar thing. Uh, the smokers appear to be uh to be protected against this and and i think the ace2 receptor might be involved it could be that the um the nicotine or some other com- component of the cigarette smoke is activating some kind of uh, infl- anti-inflammatory pathways or whatnot it mm. might be reducing the overall kind of uh hyperinflammation that someone gets if they do get covid if they have a negative like a strong response to it um, it could be actually preventing the infection in some other known way. It's kind of difficult to say at this point. Um, but yeah, it definitely seems to be uh, somewhat somewhat protective, at least in association. Yeah. And anybody who's interested, um, we've done a number of shows actually in the past about uh, tobacco and how it's kind of gotten a bad rap um, and that it actually, well... Just to blow a shocker out here, um, it actually might be beneficial. Um, I can particularly draw people's attention to a show we did when back when we were the health and wellness show and we were just doing audio, um, and we did a show called The Truth About Tobacco with Richard White, and that was um, he's the author of the book Smoke Screens: The Truth About Tobacco, and he has some very very interesting things to say about that. Um, so if anybody wants to go and check out our past shows, they can go to sot.net, S-O-T-T dot net, and kind of use the search function to find uh, some of our past shows. But uh, yeah, very interesting study there out of, uh, out of India. Um, I think that was the most interesting finding. Um, they also found that people with blood type O seem to have a, kind of a natural protection there. They didn't really speculate much on why that might be. Um, but also kind of interesting is that they also found a correlation with vegetarianism. <clears throat> but it's kind of interesting because I don't know if anybody is aware of the the blood type diet type stuff out there. Um, but basically, blood type O people 
generally function better on a high animal protein diet. Um, so you've got some weird kind of stuff going on there that don't really know what to make of as far as like blood type O people who are better with high animal protein are, are seem to have some kind of protection, whereas vegetarians seem to have some sort of protection as well. Although it should be pointed out that these are vegetarians in India um, who do actually have quite a bit of dairy in their diet. Um, yeah, don't know. It's uh, an interesting finding nonetheless. Yeah, and it's also important to note that, I mean, you know, India has the highest population of Indian uh, of vegetarians across the world. Mm-hmm. Right. So in the south of India, I mean, it's very difficult to find anywhere that sells meat publicly, mm-hmm. uh, as in restaurants, etc. And I spent a lot of time in southern India. Mm-hmm. So, so I can vouch for the fact that there are a lot of vegetarians. I think the statistic is, is anywhere around kind of 40% of vegetarians in India. So India might not be the best place to com- conduct right. this kind of research because although vegetarianism is one um, kind of variable here, there, there's there's like lots of others and it's difficult True. not to find a vegetarian in India. Uh, if you were to find that kind of statistic elsewhere, then uh, maybe that would hold kind of more weight. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure what to make of that, but maybe there is some kind of a mechanism by which um, by which it, it is protective. Yeah. It could also be, because isn't it re- um, relatively divided geographically? Like, isn't it in the south, of, like you were saying, the south of India tends to be more vegetarian, whereas the north of India? Yeah. And, yeah. and the south of India generally gets much better weather. Um, mm. If you're looking at the levels of pollution, the large cities, uh, particularly Delhi... Um, some of the northern cities are extremely polluted. Right. Uh, they get much longer winters. Um, it does get cold in the winters as well. Whereas in the south of India, you know, it's it's kind of subtropical climate, uh, particularly the further south that you go, and um, summer all year round kind of thing. Right. And so. we know that vitamin D status and sunlight in general is one of the best protections against uh, uh, any kind of virus. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, another thing that we might consider there, which hasn't been factored in, is that in the South, they're primarily Hindu. Now, with regards to the restrictions on what Hindus are must uh, must wear and must not wear, there's, there's significantly less restrictions uh, than in the Muslim population. And the Muslim population is more central and even towards the north, you have more of the, the uh, Muslims as far as I understand it. Um, and what you do see is, is in many areas um, which are predominantly Muslim, the, uh, the, the people are, are covered up and they generally don't get that much sunlight, right? So, um, so yeah, with the burqas and, and things, this, this has, again, this has been associated with really poor vitamin D status. Right. You know there's direct associations with vitamin D and with um and with kind of COVID outcomes, so yeah, there's probably lots of things to consider there. Right. Well, it'd be interesting if they used China because it's got about the same amount of population in the billions, mm-hmm. with a lot of different religious beliefs. It yeah. would be interesting to see a study come out of there. Yeah, definitely. You were saying that that they did a study and. I remember the article. I don't remember the exact name of it, but it, it focused on China. 
Well, continuing on the same vein of India, um, let's talk a little bit a, a little bit about India's current COVID crisis. Um, there was a an article on leftlockdownskeptics.com uh, called India's Current COVID Crisis in Context. And it's a very interesting um, article written by a guy who has quite a bit of connection to India. Um, I know he had spent quite a lot of time. He lived in India for eight years um, and still has quite a connection to India. So it's, it's very interesting to hear um, his perspective on, um, on the whole quote-unquote crisis. And he brings up some very interesting points. Uh, he says, firstly, the media are presenting cases and deaths in whole numbers that sound horrendous until you convert them to percentages. Um, and you consider the fact that uh, India has a population of 1.4 billion people. So there's a graph um, on the... Maybe you can scroll down to that, Damien. There's a, it's the first um, image there. It's a graph. And I don't know if people can see that there. But when you convert the numbers to percentages, you can see that Belgium, Italy, United Kingdom, Peru, Sweden, and Germany are all above um, India in the deaths that are going on from COVID-19. So although the numbers sound kind of scary, it's like when you look at it in context of the population and compare it to other populations, it's not really that scary. Um, and just, yeah, one, one interesting thing that he says actually is that um, even as alleged COVID deaths reach their peak, more people die of diarrhea every day in India and have done for years, mostly due to lack of clean water and sanitation, creating a terrain ripe for the flourishing of communicable disease. So that puts things a little bit more into perspective too. It's like COVID is not the number one killer. They're not by a long shot. Um, and another thing, I mean, we were just talking about Delhi and Elliot mentioned how polluted it is. That's another thing to kind of put into the whole thing into focus. I mean, Delhi is the, where the media's, um, focus has been. Um, and people need to understand that the air is so toxic there. People sometimes have to leave the city during their changeable weather events. So like in the spring and in the, in the fall, when the weather changes there, people often have to have to leave because the weather the 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 toxic air is so bad so delhi always has a respiratory illness problem going on it's not uh this isn't something that's kind of new with covid so you know you have to ask the question about whether they are actually separating out these covid deaths from other types of respiratory illness deaths um or if like in many other countries, there's a lot of confusion of the data going on there. <clears throat> um, he also talks about how there are um, elections going on right now. And that he says, Delhi's toxic air has been a political football for years that neither dominant party addresses directly, preferring to call on individuals' collective efforts to tackle the problem. Therefore, blaming the soaring respiratory problem that require oxygen on a COVID surge skillfully diverts the attention from the ongoing political neglect of this urgent public health issue. Uh, he says that diseases including COPD, TB, respiratory tract infections, bronchitis, pneumonia um, are all among the top 10 killers in India. So, yeah, it kind of like, you know, puts, puts things a little more into focus as far as this is concerned. The other thing that, you know, we can't really um, 
neglect to mention is the massive upswing in vaccination that has gone on there. Um, in fact, there is another graph that uh, is at the bottom of the article. Uh, Damien, maybe you can scroll to that. Um, that shows, I mean, there's a lot of writing on, I don't know how well people are going to be able to make this out, but there's a lot of writing on the, on the graph, but it basically shows, you know, charting from March 1st, 2020, it goes up, you see cases starting to rise and rise and rise. Then they mark on the graph when ivermectin started to be used in India. And you see this, the number is going down and down and down and down and down and down and down. And then in January 5th, 2021 is when the new era of the jab of jab india was launched and it's kind of stays steady for a while and then all of a sudden the numbers start to shoot up of the cases so we've done a past show on the um the deaths that are happening in israel and how suspicious those are because they seem to coincide with the uh massive uptick in uh vaccinated people so i think um you know Correlation does not equal causation, but you also have to realize that coincidences that big need some kind of explanation. Well, it's interesting, too, how, you know, they really skew people's mind with the cases and the information and put people in this fear mode, like just going back to the diarrhea issue, like if you were really concerned with public health especially people like Bill Gates, you know, it wouldn't be that hard to fund sanitation and water, you know, sanitation issues mm -hmm. for sure. And the fact that every solution comes at the end of a jab and we start to see now months into it, what that jab is doing, it just really, it sets off alarm bells for people that are paying attention. You know, I mean, we saw that, oh, well, there was the South African variant and then they had to kind of go away with that. And now it's the India variant and it just keeps mm -hmm. moving around to get people on the same page. What I find interesting is after all the damage Bill Gates has done in India, that people are even considering yeah. a vaccine at this yeah. point. Well, apparently they have been pro having problems actually trying to uh, get compliance out of people, despite the fact that there's been like 111 million people who have been vaccinated. Um, there has been an issue with, um, with people actually getting on board and getting the, the vaccine. And I personally, I don't blame them. I mean, basically, the Western world has been treating India like its own personal pincushion for how long? Yeah, and, and specifically the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, there have right. been many cases where... where They've essentially been shunned, you know. They've they've been they've been dismissed. They've been told to get out. Mm -hmm. um, wasn't it only last year that they were told to like get out of the country because mm -hmm. of all the damage that they've been uh, doing, particularly with their vaccine experiments and their drug trials? I mean, big farmers basically used India and Africa as like a, as a petri dish, you know, or as a, as a like a, a a laboratory experiment, mm -hmm. um, and particularly. Uh, the the vaccines for young children which has ended up in countless number of deaths disabilities um child malformations you know like birth defects uh, infertility the list really goes on and there's many many activists in india who've rightly pointed that out mm -hmm. and um and i think the general public uh they 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 have seen this 
uh, at least within the communities, and, and they are rightfully sceptical. So, um, so I hope that they can continue to kind of stand up against this and they're not going to have it forced upon them. Yeah. I agree. And, you know, the documentary, The Plandemic, was actually really good at focusing on India and how the parliament there decided, just like you said, Elliot, to kick these guys out of the country, you know, after they showed just basic negligence. And uh, one of the speakers in the pandemic documentary was completely shocked that that he said, I've never seen this happen before as far as the parliament actually caring about people in this way. And then what, eight months later, COVID happens and they're inviting them back in with this new vaccine. So it just goes to show you that, like you said, they are a pin cushion and and the fact that uh, polio is on the rise again after mm-hmm. it was pretty much eradicated, you know, I mean, there's just so many things that are um, very concerning for those paying attention. Yeah. So I think the bottom line is if uh, you're in India, um, start smoking, but don't get the vaccine. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, moving on. Um, there was an article that was posted in rcpsych.ac.uk, uh, um, which is Royal College of Psychiatrists, and it's called Country in the Grip of a Mental Health Crisis with Children Worst Affected, New Analysis Finds. So this was a an analysis done by the Royal College of Psychiatrists, and they were kind of looking at um, the... NHS digital data um, showing people of all ages who were um, going for help, essentially, psychiatric help. And what they found is that 80,226 more children and young people were referred to CYP mental health services between April and December December last year, up by 28% um, from 2019 bringing the total to 372,438. So 28% increase, essentially. Um, 600,628 600, more treatment sessions were given to children and young people, up by a fifth from 2019 to 3.58 million. 18,269 children and young people needed urgent or emergency crisis care, including assessments to see if someone needs to be sectioned because they or others are at harm an increase of 18% since 2019. So essentially we're seeing a huge rise in mental health problems with children. And I mean, this is hardly surprising. We've talked in the past on the show about the um, increase in mental health problems that's been caused by this, the lockdowns essentially, you know, it's not the virus. You can't blame the virus for this. It's the overreaction to the virus. Um, and I mean, you know, you can imagine like kids in this thing, right? Suddenly they're segregated. They can't play with their friends anymore. They can't go to school. They're not getting out of the house except for maybe an hour a day. Um, yeah, that's going to drive the kids crazy. I don't think there's much, you know, it doesn't take a, a genius to figure that out. Um, but, you know, let's continue on with this charade, even though the kids, they've said over and over again that the kids don't actually catch COVID uh, much anyway. So the whole thing is really uh, depressing, essentially. 
And it is a mental health crisis. I mean, those numbers are staggering. And I don't know the population of the UK, but it I would imagine it's it's not. I mean, that's just staggering to me, yeah. those numbers. And, and you know, those are parents that are actually reporting. It's kind of like the vaccine reactions. Mm-hmm. You know, those are parents that are actually trust the government enough to report these things. Because as a parent who's dealt with children with uh, mental health issues, like the sometimes the last thing you want to do is have a uh, child protective services come into your home. You yeah, know, right. there's a lot of distrust there. So this speaks as being an epidemic in for children. And, you know, we all love our children so much and everyone cares about the kids. But then you see numbers like this and you think, well, what's going on here? I mean, how are they continuing to isolate and sequester these children away from other people and cause irreversible damage? I mean, that's the thing. Like, yes, they may open up eventually and the kids will get back to normal. And yes, children are very resilient, but um, the fear alone and, and the shame associated with, you know, it's, it's just, it's very concerning. Yeah. And developmentally, they're not getting those proper milestones to develop into semi-functional adults. You know? Exactly. So. Yeah. The permanent damage that's being done is is really quite stunning. They quote in the article a doctor named Dr. Bernadka Dabika. I'm probably butchering that name and I apologize. But um, They say, our children and young people are bearing the brunt of the mental health crisis caused by the pandemic and are at risk of lifelong mental illness. Risk of lifelong mental illness. As a frontline psychiatrist, I've seen the devastating effect that school closures, disrupted friendships, and, and the uncertainty caused by the pandemic have had on mental health of our children and young people. Um, services were already struggling to cope with the number of children needing help before the pandemic hit, and they risk being overrun unless government ensures the promises, promised money reaches the front line quickly. So, yeah, I just thought that, I, I mean, this doctor is blaming it on the, uh, the pandemic. Like I said, I don't think it's, it's the pandemic. It's the overreaction to the pandemic. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, we're, we're talking about permanent problems. It's not like, you know, if the lockdowns go away tomorrow. It's not like all these kids just go back to normal. Some of them might, but, you know, the damage is being done on a daily basis. Well, and in that article, too, they talk about a um, one teenage girl named Sarah who um, relapsed in anorexia. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, again trying to deal with an issue like anorexia and having consistency. And she, she's trying to recover from this obviously very debilitating eating disorder that can kill her. Mm -hmm. And um, she doesn't have any positive practices or activities that can replace that issue with the eating disorder. So, you know what I mean? It's like, it's almost like they've set her up to fail. Yeah. And um, I couldn't believe that, um, you know, she talks in there about how she has to be on a feeding tube. I mean, that's serious for a teenager to be on a feeding tube Mm -hmm. daily to get the nutrients she needs. You know what I mean? And, um, 
that's just one person. That's just one person that came out and spoke about it. I mean, mm-hmm. again, all the different teens that are suffering in silence about this, that the parents aren't even aware that they're dealing with these type of issues. And maybe on the other side of that, parents are becoming more aware because their kids are home all the time. But I can only imagine the domestic violence issues and all those other things, again, that that people aren't reporting because they're afraid. I mean, is it correct, Elliot, already in the UK? I mean, it's like they're going to door to door and harassing people and, you know, ticketing people and you can't go outside. So there's so much fear surrounding all aspects that Mm -hmm. it's just it's just like a perfect storm, you know? Yeah, indeed, it's pretty bad in the UK, um, and we have uh, yeah, a lot of people are paranoid mm-hmm. or have bought into the fear, fear mongering, um, and unfortunately, that's transferred onto children as well. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, it's it's very frequently that you'd go out to the shops or or something, and you see a whole family, young children in their masks. Yeah, right, or even right. you know young 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 kind of teenagers, I know twelve year olds, thirteen, fourteen year olds, out with their buddies on a nice day, wearing the masks outside. Um, so clearly they they've, they've they've you know they're sponges at that age, so they've absorbed it as much as anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think unfortunately, I mean those are such important developmental years. They're how we form a personality. They're how we learn right from wrong. They're how we kind of uh, learn our autonomy or express our autonomy, you know, and become adults. It's a really, really, really important stages that children are missing out on. And I really feel particularly for the for the young children who are unable to um, to go outside and play with their friends. Yeah. For God's sake, I mean, it's insane. They can't even go out outside and play in the garden or play, you know, play play, play down the park with their friends. And if they've got particularly um, paranoid parents, then, I mean, it's very likely that this is going to carry on for years to come, mm-hmm. you know, because because um, it doesn't seem as though there's any, of, there's any end in sight to this. And even with the, even with the vaccines... Uh, I I wouldn't be surprised if if there's many who continue wearing masks and continue avoiding social gatherings and 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 really uh and and don't don't change the way that they're kind of approaching this situation. So I mean it's it's an absolutely terrible situation. Yeah. For children children are the biggest victims. It's really sad. And just incidentally, the article does say that it's also affecting adults. Over one million more treatment sessions were given to adults between April and December last year. Uh, an increase of 8%. And there were also 159,347 urgent crisis referrals made for adults, an all-time high and an increase of 2%. So, yeah, crisis indeed. Well, on that happy note, um, I think... Take off your max and don't get the vax. (laughs) And smoke. All right, See, we well, can make it happy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I think that that is our show for this week. Uh, thanks for watching. Don't forget to like and subscribe if you so desire. And we will see you next week with another great show. Until next time.
All the best.